Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. So this series of lectures has been asking one overarching question. What can we do about climate change? In this final lecture, I want to pose a slightly narrower version of that question. I want to ask, what can theology and religion do about climate change? I think it's a question that can still be taken in a variety of different ways. So we might want to ask, how are people of faith responding in an era of ecological breakdown. We could ask, what does the ethics of any one particular religious tradition contribute to public policy making? Or we might ask something along the lines of, how are religions themselves going to be forced to change in a warmer world? I'm not gonna be able to provide complete answers to those questions today, but there is one simple thing that I would like to try and convince you of. And that's this, that theology and religion do have a vital role to play in the response to climate change. So I think our current predicament could rightly be described as a technological challenge, as an economic challenge, as a political challenge. But what I want to try and suggest to you is that it's also, to some extent, a spiritual and religious challenge. I think climate change is a theological issue too. I should note, most of the examples that I'm going to be giving today um, concern Christianity, and that's simply because that's the religion that I happen to study. But I think some very similar things could be said from other faith perspectives. And my aim is to try and persuade you that theology and religion, in general, have some important contributions to make to this conversation about climate change. So in the first half of the lecture, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about one of the early articles in so-called eco-theology. I want to show you some data that I think underlines the importance of theology and religion for this conversation. And I want to say a little bit about Pope Francis's idea of what he calls ecological conversion. Then in the second half of the lecture, I'm going to say a little bit more about some of my own research, which focuses on a rather different role for theology and religion. And that's one that relates to issues of trauma, witnessing, and lament. The American Academy of Religion, or AAR as it's called, is the largest gathering of theologians and scholars of religion in the world, with something like 10,000 members. And at their annual conference last year, the outgoing president of the AAR, Myra Rivera, asked a single question of the whole conference. She asked, what's the role of the study of religion in times of catastrophe? And her answer was simply to point to the many and varied papers being presented at that conference. Religious themes of apocalypse, justice, and hope were coming up again and again and again. 
Furthermore, as entities that are somewhat detached from corporate and national interests, religions are uniquely placed, Rivera argued, to provide a complementary perspective on climate change. So scholars of theology and religion are already thinking quite hard about what role they can play in the midst of the climate crisis. But before we delve any further into what theology and religion can do in a positive sense, it's worth pausing to remember that many people have also seen theology and religion as the villains of the piece. And there is, in fact, quite a strong argument that theology and religion are, at least in part, to blame for our ecological crisis. So this is a line of thinking that goes back to what's now a famous paper that was published in 1967. It's by a medieval historian called Lynn White, um, and he published it in a journal, the, the journal Science. And what he said was that our environmental crisis can be traced back to attitudes found within a Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's specifically here Judaism and Christianity that are held up for criticism, as opposed to any of the other world religions. And what White recognized was that various uses of science and technology are indeed at the forefront of resource extraction and ecosystem destruction. But he argued that these activities are underpinned by attitudes that ultimately stemmed from religion. And there are five parts to his argument, which I want to run through very briefly with you now. First, these Western monotheisms, that is Judaism and Christianity in this case, he says, are deeply and problematically anthropocentric. Humanity is separate, special, different, unique, or at the top of the pyramid. Only humans are made in the image of God. Only humans get to name the other animals. Only humans will be saved. And only a human being, Jesus Christ, is appropriate for God's incarnation in the world. So as White puts it in that paper, he says Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion the world has seen. That's his first problem. Second problem. These religions, again, Judaism and Christianity, he says promote a series of problematic dualisms. The creator is privileged over the creation. Mind is privileged over body. Reason is privileged over emotion. Spirit is privileged over matter. And culture is privileged over nature. And it's that final dualism that becomes a problem in our current time. Nature is to be contained, constrained, and on this view, ultimately transcended. So that's his second problem. Third. Certain religious texts even appear to provide a specific mandate for the exploitation of nature. If you read Genesis, for example, you'll find a command to both subdue and dominate other parts of the creation. The Hebrew words that are used here are used in other contexts to refer to both military conquest and rape. It appears that it might even be part of the divine will that humans exploit nature. So that's the third big problem. Number four, White notes how Christianity, in particular, actively sought to replace various pre-existing animist spiritualities. So Christianity specifically denied that there was any such thing as a soul or spirit in nature. And in doing so, 
Christianity makes it possible, so this argument goes, to treat the natural world as a series of objects that are just to be manipulated and used. And finally, the Judeo-Christian worldview often comes with a very linear view of time. It seems like we're on a trajectory of progress, from creation at the beginning to some sort of heavenly end of the world. The sense of assurance that things are ultimately only going to get better, and that might be through things like medicine, technology, human ingenuity, that trajectory of progress can prevent us from questioning the path that we are on. So together, these five attitudes and beliefs have legitimated, says White, an awful lot of the environmental destruction that humans have wrought on the planet. The anthropocentric bias of Judaism and Christianity, the split between nature and culture, the apparent mandate for a domination of the natural world in certain religious texts, the disenchantment of the world as these monotheisms deny the presence of a god or soul or spirit in nature, and a progressive view of time. These factors all combine to create what White sees as a philosophy underpinning our current ecological crisis. In White's own words, he says, Christianity bears a huge burden of guilt. So in a sense, much of the field of eco-theology, or as it's sometimes called religion and ecology, has consisted in responses to or arguments against White's provocative paper. Many people have pointed out, for example, that there are other parts of the Jewish and Christian scriptures beyond Genesis that imply very different attitudes to nature. Or they point out that ecological destruction and fossil fuel combustion is not unique to those countries or regions that are historically or culturally Jewish or Christian. And there has been a sense, especially amongst religious believers themselves, that their religious traditions ought to be able to contribute something more, something positive. After all, religions are very often about morality and ethics and how to live well. So as a result, many theologians have had cause to revisit parts of their religious traditions, parts that had perhaps been lying dormant or at least underemphasized in order to unearth texts and ideas that are more obviously environmentally friendly. So is this just a niche project for those who happen to have a religious faith and want to convince themselves they have something to contribute? The answer, I think, is no. Many other groups within society, including many climate scientists, are increasingly recognizing that people of faith are allies in the response to climate change. This is an article from the scientific journal Nature, um, and it illustrates exactly this. It claims that religion is part of the puzzle. And indeed, I think some of the previous lectures in this very series have drawn attention to the religious dimensions of the climate crisis. Ben Rawlins, for example, argued that the ecological crisis is a crisis of values and worldviews. We need, he said, a complete change of culture, a complete system change. Likewise, Mike Hume proposed that climate change is not primarily about the science or about the facts but about a series of more fundamental questions. He asked things like, how should human beings live? How should societies navigate disagreement? And what duties do we have to others? And again, I think these are questions that pertain 
to our values and our worldviews. And I want to show you some data which indicates just how important religion is for exactly these questions about values and worldviews. So it can be tempting to think in a comparatively secular country like the UK that religion is on the decline. But from a global perspective, the very opposite is true. The latest data on religious adherence, this is from the Pew Research Forum, um, and it is from 2015. It showed that 84% of the global population has a religious faith, and only 16% is non-religious. So for 84% of the global population, their beliefs and perspectives on the world, including their attitudes to the environment, to nature, are to some extent shaped by their religious worldviews. And what's more, these numbers are set to rise. So the Pew Research Forum predicts that by 2060, 87% of the global population will be religious, with a particularly rapid rise for Islam and a slightly smaller rise for Christianity. So if climate crisis, the climate crisis is really a crisis of values and worldviews, then I think this data would suggest that religions seem to be at the heart of the issue. Pope Francis is not the first religious leader to have spoken out publicly about climate change, but his interventions have been particularly widely noted. So in 2015, he wrote a letter called Laudato Si, and in it, he speaks about what he calls the need for ecological conversion. And by that, he means precisely a reorientation of our values and our worldviews. So within Christianity, Francis suggests that this ecological conversion should come about as a result of contemplating aspects of the Christian faith. And he writes this. He says, the ecological crisis is also a summons to profound interior conversion. It must be said, some committed and prayerful Christians, with the excuse of realism and pragmatism, tend to ridicule expressions of concern for the environment. Others are passive. They choose not to change their habits and thus become inconsistent. So what they all need is an ecological conversion, whereby the effects of their encounter with Jesus Christ become evident in their relationship with the world around them. Living our vocation to be protectors of God's handiwork is essential to a life of virtue. It's not an optional or secondary aspect of our Christian experience. So there, Pope Francis is very much talking to Christians. But he's also very, very explicit with his letter, Laudato Si, that he also wants to write to people of all faiths and none. And as he sets out throughout the document, he thinks we all need to convert from what he calls an addiction to a technocratic paradigm, um, and by that, he means a kind of rational way of thinking uh, where technology can be the solution to everything. So we need to convert from this technocratic paradigm to what he calls an integral ecology. And by that, he means a recognition of the interconnections between all aspects of life. And Francis doesn't hold back in his critique of the logics of domination and extraction that typify the technocratic paradigm. We all need to shift, he says, from a focus on finance and technology to a recognition that human well-being is intimately connected to planetary well-being. Love of neighbour is not separate from love of earth. And for Francis, both of these are part and parcel of what it means to love God. 
So religion has the potential to galvanize change. Within any one religion, a focus on attitudes towards the natural world can help to bring religious adherence to a moment of ecological conversion. So within Christianity, for example, a lot of work has gone into rereading that Genesis text I mentioned earlier. And as a result, it's widely accepted by biblical scholars that this passage is better read in terms of an ethic of stewardship and care. Christians are called to protect, steward, care for, love, defend, and conserve creation. And different parts of the Christian tradition put the emphasis in different places. So more conservative veins of thought focus specifically on this mandate for creation care. More radical and more progressive veins of thought focus on other issues like ecological justice, divine presence within the natural world, or indeed the sacredness of all matter. So I think eco-theology has the potential to motivate very large fractions of the global population to do something about climate change. And here, eco-theology extends far beyond the Christianity I've just been talking about. So there's a famous series of conferences hosted at Harvard just prior to the turn of millennium, which resulted in this series of books. And they introduced readers to the place of ecological thinking within many of the world's faiths. Together, the conferences and books involved more than 800 scholars and even now, 20-odd years later, these books are still the benchmark for the work that's done in eco-theology in the world's major faith traditions. And in the UK today, each of the major world religions has institutions and groups that are campaigning for or working towards some sort of ecological future. Many of these groups also collaborate and work together, um, and that's because interfaith cooperation and dialogue around ecological issues seems like a very good way to do interfaith work. And protest movements like Extinction Rebellion have very much attracted people from a variety of different faiths. Finally, secular charities like this one, which is called Climate Outreach, and they work on climate change communication across a wide range of different contexts. They, as a secular organization, are increasingly recognizing the immense importance of tapping into religious motivations to tackle climate change. So in this report, the authors focus on ideas that they think can motivate people from across different faith traditions. Ideas such as the notion that the earth is a gift, that climate change poses a moral challenge, or that climate change disrupts a natural balance. So in many instances then, theology and religion can be part of the positive changes that are needed as we face climate change. But to return again to Mike Hume's earlier lecture, this is to just focus on one of the possible stories about climate change, what he called a story of transformation. Now, I do believe that theology and religion are incredibly important players in that story of transformation. But I also think theology and religion have a vital role to play in what Hume called the story of lament. And this is where I want to talk a little bit more about some of my own research. So in my own work, I focus specifically on Christian eco-theology, and I'm currently writing about the category of trauma in relation to Christian approaches to the ecological crisis. In recent years, there's been a lot of work within theology to think about trauma in human contexts and to respond to it theologically. But what I'm trying to do is to take some of that same thinking 
and see if it can be applied in a non-human context to talk about trauma that extends beyond the human. And I use the word trauma here to denote a quite specific type of suffering. Trauma is a form of suffering that's ongoing, recurring, persistent, not easily solved. And I think it's helpful to think about trauma in terms of three ruptures. This is one way of characterizing how people think about trauma, both in a human context and then perhaps in a non-human context. So the first rupture is what people call a rupture of flesh. And this is simply the notion that trauma involves some sort of physical damage, injury or intrusion of a body. And the original Greek word trauma similarly refers to a literal wounding of the flesh. The second rupture is a rupture of communication. This is to observe that victims of trauma often find it nigh on impossible to articulate what's occurred. The suffering can be so acute and yet so hidden that it's impossible to put it into words. It feels too big to ever fully comprehend. And physiologically, in human beings, this is because there's a separation between our cerebral cortex and the rest of our nervous system during a traumatic event. It enables us to respond very rapidly in the moment, but can prevent us from processing the event in real time. So the experience isn't properly integrated into our memory systems, and this is part of what leads to the breakdown in communication. And finally, then, there's a rupture of time. This includes the fragmentation and failure of traumatic memories from the past, the invasion of the present via flashbacks and nightmares, and an inability to imagine the future. It's simply not the case that time heals all wounds. Linear timelines of healing are completely overturned. So trauma, and specifically post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, was first diagnosed amongst vict uh, veterans from Vietnam uh, and then subsequently discovered amongst victims of domestic and sexual abuse. Uh, and it was added to the uh, American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in the 1980s. So that's the kind of medical origins of talking about trauma. But trauma also has a literary history. And it's been used to indicate, for example, the potential breakdown between reality and language's ability to adequately describe that reality or indeed the incommunicability of experiences as horrendous as the Holocaust. More recently, the language of trauma has arisen in relation to a wide variety of different phenomena. So it's been recognized, for example, that trauma can be triggered just as much by a slowly progressing disease as by a world-shattering event. Trauma can apply to families and communities and societies just as much as to individuals. And indeed, trauma is increasingly thought to be relevant to discussions about the ecological crisis. And it's important to be clear here, trauma is a category that crosses between disciplines and is understood in many different senses. So when I use the word trauma here, I do want to suggest that there's some meaningful similarity between different instances of trauma, but not necessarily any moral equivalence. Um, I don't think traumas should be in the business of competing in some sort of scale or hierarchy of suffering. So how is all of this about trauma relevant to conversations about the environment? In essence, I think there are three ways we could look at trauma and the environment. The first would be to think about ways in which human beings 
are traumatized by the process of climate change. And plenty of this sort of trauma has already occurred. Island dwellers have lost their homelands. Refugees have been forced to migrate. And people have been wounded by more intense and more frequent extreme weather events. But psychologists also talk about another phenomenon, which they call pre-traumatic stress disorder, as opposed to the usual, more usual post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is where people are traumatized by the anticipation of what climate change will bring. So that's the first way of thinking about trauma and the environment. The second, we might think about the trauma of non-human species in as much as they are capable of subjective experience. They may well be traumatized by changing habitats, depleting ecosystems, rising sea levels, and they may or may not be conscious of this, but the threat of extinction. So that's the second option. Thirdly, we could begin to imagine the planet itself as traumatized. Now, this is a metaphor, a deliberate projection of what we normally think of as human capacities onto the planet as a whole. But I think it's a potentially helpful one because it might reframe how we relate to the Earth. Just as some cultures and some countries have done things like ordaining trees or recognizing the legal personhood of mountains and rivers, we might envisage climate change as a symptom of a traumatized Earth. And I think that's potentially helpful because it can prompt us to rethink how we relate to it. So one of the leading Christian trauma theologians is someone called Serene Jones, um, and she writes this in the preface uh, to one of her books. She says, the different forms of violence I was describing, the whole book is about human trauma, that those different forms of violence have also been perpetrated, she says, against the earth itself. We're witnessing the violation of the integrity of creation. It's as if we're living in a traumatized physical environment. So I think there are a variety of different ways in which we could conceive of the trauma of climate change. But what then is theology and religion to do? What resources do they offer? How can we respond to this trauma? One answer might be found in religious traditions of lament. So within the Christian tradition, for example, the prophets are full of such exclamations of grief about the state of the land. So these are just three quotations uh, from the prophets Jeremiah and Hosea. They write things like this. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void. Because of this, the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above grow black. Or how long will the land mourn, and the grass of every field wither? For the wickedness of those who live in it, the animals and the birds are swept away. Therefore the land mourns, and all who live in it languish, together with the wild animals and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea are perishing. And note how in the examples I've given here, the earth itself is given a capacity to mourn and to grieve. The earth is joining in in this process of lament. So there's the same sort of metaphorical projection going on here as I just described when we apply trauma to the planet. So when these texts are used in acts of worship or devotion, I think they can provide a powerful vocabulary for articulating some of the trauma of ecological destruction. I think these religious texts can help us with the process of lament. So this recent book, which is called Words for a Dying World, 
aims to promote exactly this sort of practice. And it includes a wide range of personal reflections from across the Christian church. The authors recognize that people need to be encouraged not just to do something about climate change, but also to acknowledge what has already been lost irrevocably. We need to learn how to adopt postures of lament. Now, my point here is not to be unnecessarily apocalyptic or unduly fatalistic. Climate change is not, in fact, leading us to the end of the world, as in the destruction of the whole planet. Neither is it something that we can either solve or fail to solve, as if there are only two possible outcomes. Instead, a warming climate involves a whole series of smaller losses and smaller endings. Some worlds, as in spheres of activity or modes of understanding, will end or have already ended. So, for example, in her lecture for this series, Julia Slingo spoke about the people of Kiribati, which in 2015 was already inundated with saline water at high tide. For Kiribati, there isn't really a solution to climate change. Sea level rise is making these islands uninhabitable. The world that the people of Kiribati know is indeed ending. It's too late to do anything about it. The best response in this instance is to mourn what is lost and to adapt to new ways of living. So as the president of Kiribati put it, he was focusing on migration with dignity. So lament is not about being fatalistic, but about being realistic about phenomena that it's already too late to change. Given the long lag times on some Earth processes and the various tipping points in the climate system, it seems that there are already several changes that it may be too late to do anything about. So, for example, it was reported last summer that major sea level rise because of the melting of the Greenland ice sheet is now inevitable. At least 27 centimetres of sea level rise is locked into the system due to historic emissions. Even if fossil fuel use were to end instantaneously, there's nothing we can do to prevent this rise in sea level. And with such large fractions of the global population living in coastal towns and cities, this change will have drastic impacts over the next century or so. What can we do? Well, I think we need to mourn what is lost, seek justice for those affected, and work doubly hard to make sure the sea level rise isn't even larger. Alongside lament, another important practice that's recommended both by trauma theorists and trauma theologians is what they call a practice of witnessing. And this is where I want to pick up the words in my title. This lecture was called Witnessing Catastrophe. Part of what makes instances of trauma so traumatic is the difficulty of articulating or communicating anything about them. As the Holocaust survivor and trauma theorist Dori Laub puts it, trauma involves, quote, a collapse of witnessing. In the ecological realm, Laub's collapse of witnessing can be understood as our own failure to attend to the traumatic suffering of the rest of the natural world. But by seeking to bear witness to what's occurring, we can begin to help victims to unearth the pain that's being suffered and share it with others 
in the hope that this pain will be recognized, honored, and dignified. The temptation is to leap straight to solutions. But some of the traumas, some, not all, of the traumas of climate change are not ultimately solvable. They are to be lived with rather than prevented or recovered from. Different theorists bring different aspects of this practice of witnessing to the fore. So for the trauma theologian Shelley Rambo, witnessing is not about any sort of confident proclamation or an imitation of the trauma. For her, witnessing is simply what she calls a commitment to remain, to remain with suffering that's ongoing and persisting and doesn't go away. Donna Haraway expresses the same idea in quite a different idiom. She talks about staying with the trouble. And Kelly Oliver notes how witnessing is about more than just recognizing or copying, but testifying to that which cannot in fact be seen, bringing to light that suffering which is occluded or repressed or forgotten. So in a sense, one could imagine that the work of a climate scientist is to bear witness to that which would otherwise go in unseen. Without the work of scientists, we would be far less aware of the slow violence that's being wrought by the increasing temperatures. You might even read a scientific paper as a kind of witness statement on behalf of ice sheets, ecosystems, coral reefs, or other species, whose traumas would otherwise go unacknowledged and undignified. So before closing, I'd like to offer just one more brief reflection on this idea of witnessing from a Christian theological perspective. And I want to do so by focusing on a painting that's influenced quite a lot of my thinking. It's by an American artist called Mark Tanzi. So at first glance, we see a jagged fracture rupturing the canvas from top to bottom. It's a fault that marks the location of a recent earthquake. And let me be clear here, Climate change doesn't directly have anything to do with earthquakes. What I'm interested in and what I'm trying to point out is that the ideas provoked, I think, by this painting find parallels in exactly what I was just saying about witnessing climate change. So in this picture, we see a man in the foreground who stopped to examine the rupture. But no explanation for its occurrence is forthcoming. The unsettling monochrome red magnifies the sense of bleeding and hurt. We're looking, it seems, at an indiscriminate violence that's torn the land in two, an archetype, you might say, of the brokenness of creation, a sign of our wounded planet, a reminder of everything wrong with the world. Meanwhile, the sleek car in the centre of the painting provides a stark contrast. Half off the canvas, door flung open, the driver seems impatient to move on, blithely straddling the cracks of this world. If you were to adopt Pope Francis's scheme, the car could very easily un um, represent what he called the technocratic paradigm. So perhaps the artist Tanzi is intending a warning about technological optimism, human arrogance, and our desire for progress. But there's also, I think, a bit more going on because the painting's title prompts us to look again. This canvas is called Doubting Thomas. And we're immediately reminded of the scene in John's Gospel where the disciple Thomas demands to see material evidence of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Thomas wants to see the marks of the nails in Christ's hands, 
and the wound in his side. And it's a scene that's depicted very memorably by Caravaggio in his painting The Incredulity of St. Thomas. So by calling his painting Doubting Thomas, I think Mark Tanzi sets up a very interesting series of identifications. The body of the earth becomes the body of Christ. The ruptured fault becomes Christ's pierced side. The scene of recent seismic activity becomes a stark reminder of the crucifixion. And I think there's all sorts of practices of witnessing going on here. Thomas the disciple bears witness to Christ's wounded body. Thomas by the roadside bears witness to a wounded earth. There's also a sense in which Christ's crucifixion stands as a witness to the way in which we are now, quote, crucifying the earth. And this is put incredibly powerfully, I think, by an eco-theologian called Mark Wallace. He writes the following. He says, Our forebears executed God's innocent son at Calvary in a paroxysm of rage and violence. We do the same on the earth through market forces and habitat destruction. God is crucified afresh when we lay waste to the carnal presence of God on earth. The paschal trauma of the cross is daily reactualized through our regular assaults on the good creation God has made. The earth has become cruciform. The scars of Golgotha are everywhere. Jesus' crucifixion wounds are now reopened as the whole earth bears the marks of eco-catastrophe. And there's a final twist to this painting, I think. Looking again at Tansy's painting of Doubting Thomas, we're reminded that what Thomas encounters here is Christ's resurrection body. The transformation which Christians believe is inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ does not involve removing the signs of wounding. In fact, the only way in which redemption is possible is via this wounded and traumatised body. In much the same way, the scars that we leave on the earth, both literal and metaphorical, are likely to remain in one form or another. So theology might help to bring about an important transformation, personal, communal or societal, but it's not going to undo the traumatic violence that's already been perpetrated. So I began this lecture with a single question. What can theology and religion do about climate change? And what I've been trying to persuade you of is that theology and religion can have a large part to play in our response to climate change. Partly because a lot of the changes we need to, come, need to make come down to issues that relate to our beliefs, our values, and our worldviews. And partly because such a large fraction of the global population is religious, 84% and rising. But I've also tried to show that religious responses to climate change are not necessarily straightforward. Part of the task is to try and motivate people to change, to bring about what Pope Francis was calling ecological conversion, to encourage people to be good stewards of creation, to seek ecological justice. But the other part of the task for theology and religion, I think, is to provide people with ways of lamenting and witnessing those traumas that have already been perpetrated, those violences that can never be undone. So in this sense, I think religions have a tricky line to walk. They exist on the boundary between tragedy and hope. Thank you very much for your attention.
Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.